Welcome to Rusk Insights on Rehabilitation Medicine, a top podcast featuring interviews with thought leaders in the field of PM&R from Rusk Rehabilitation at NYU Langone Medical Center and other prominent rehab medicine institutions. Your host for these interviews is Dr. Tom Elwood. He will take you behind the scenes to look at what is transpiring in the exciting world of rehabilitation research and clinical services through the eyes of those involved in making dynamic breakthroughs in healthcare. So listen, learn, and enjoy. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us today for COVID-19 Conversations, powered by Rusk Rehabilitation. I'm Dr. Jonathan Whiteson, the Vice Chair for Clinical Operations at Rusk Rehabilitation and the Medical Director for Cardiac and Pulmonary Rehabilitation here at Rusk. Today's topic will be rehabilitation through the continuum of care for patients with functional limitations due to COVID-19. We have a group of faculty and staff battling the pandemic on the front lines of the epicenter of New York City, who will discuss important questions submitted by you and your colleagues from around the country. We are about to share our experience in a situation that remains very fluid. Treatments and actions we have taken to date may change as we and others gain additional experience. And as such, what we talk about today should not be regarded as treatment guidelines. We hope to make your work and patient care a little easier for you by sharing our journey. On our panel today, we have Kara Nijewick. Kara is a speech-language pathologist and site director of rehabilitation services at NYU Langone, Brooklyn. Michelle Romano is a licensed clinical social worker and assistant director of the Department of Care Management and Social Work. Michelle, it's good to have you with us today. Hi, thanks. Jeffrey Fine is vice chair for Rust Rehabilitation and chief of the Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation Service at NYU Brooklyn. Hi, Jeff. Oh. And Aaron... Pinkasov is chairman in the Department of Psychiatry at NYU Winthrop Hospital, clinical professor of psychiatry at NYU School of Medicine and NYU Long Island School of Medicine. Dr. Pinkasov. Thank you for inviting. Thank you. So let's discuss uh, the rehabilitation through the continuum of care for patients with functional limitations due to COVID-19. And Jeff, I'd, I'd like to start with you if I could. Talk to us and, and share with our colleagues what are the spectrum of conditions that uh, have been impacting function for the rehabilitation team uh, and is uh, confronting the rehab team here at Rusk through the continuum of care? What are you seeing? Sure. So our rehab unit was converted to um, a medical unit where we were actively managing uh, COVID patients. In regards to the clinical management, uh, COVID is a beta coronavirus that makes its way into the body through the nasopharynx into the lungs and binds to ACE receptors in the oropharynx, in, in the bases of the lungs, in the kidneys. And um, the consequence of that infection is a, is a profound cytokine storm, an inflammatory response that interferes with respiratory function and renal function. The secondary consequence of that is, is that it appears to produce a a coagulation cascade where patients are maturing megakaryocytes and uh, producing uh, thrombotic emboli uh, in the lungs. And uh, as published this week, uh, a number of cases now of young patients with stroke uh, that are presenting uh, with uh, COVID as their primary presentation. So I agree with you uh, from the science. A lot of the 
comorbidities or the disease states that we're seeing in COVID-19 is related to uh, abnormal thrombosis and clotting, microemboli. We've seen people with lung disease and cardiac disease in the rehabilitation setting, and it, it could be in the ICU where the rehab team is working and the physiatrist may be consulting, could be on the acute medical units, and certainly on the inpatient rehabilitation unit. What are the kind of uh, deficits that are being seen that, that really relate to function and are, are impeding function and so therefore need to be the focus of the rehabilitation care? Sure, sure. Uh, the lungs still remain, remain the primary area of pathology. The uh, inability to diffuse oxygen across the inflamed alveolar space plus the increased secretions uh, that accumulate in the alveoli produce an activity intolerance. Patients have very limited ability to exercise and participate in activities that consume oxygen. Associated with that for some patients as they accumulate carbon dioxide and have a hypercapnia, they start to have cognitive impairments, confusion, irritability, encephalopathy. So I think the primary, primary deficits are activity intolerance uh, and uh, impaired arousal and participation from a cognitive standpoint, either from fixed neurologic deficits like stroke or rarely uh, encephalitis, uh, but more commonly the inflammatory response producing a, a delirium or a confusion. So rehabilitation teams as they're taking care of patients who have COVID-19 can expect pulmonary deficits, cardiac deficits, neurologic deficits in the form of stroke, but also cognitive deficits. We're seeing people with myopathies and neuropathies, which are most likely critical illness. I saw a patient today who has brachial plexus injury from the proning position. So there are many different consequences and sequelae, and lots of patients are being put in prone to improve their oxygenation in the ICU. So the rehabilitation team, the physiatrist and the therapist really need to look from toes to nose and everything in between because every organ system can be involved here. In your experience, Jeff, how long is it taking for patients to traverse through the healthcare system? Really from the time of admission, what is the trajectory for most of the patients that are sort of needing inpatient rehabilitation? Uh, so I'd say there, there are two hospitalized patient courses. There are many patients that don't require hospitalization. That may be upwards of 80% of patients that can uh, manage in the community without a hospital uh, admission. But for those admitted to the hospital or patients typically with more a significant uh, hypoxic respiratory failure. And there are probably two divisions there, both requiring rehab at some point. Uh, some that have a stepwise progression of improvement and get past a 10 or a 12 day interval um, and then can be discharged uh, to home. Unless they have other underlying medical comorbidities that require rehab that get exacerbated by the inflammatory storm. Then there's a second group of patients that unfortunately deteriorate around that 10 or 12 days into their course because of the progression of that uh, inflammatory injury to the lung. And those patients then uh, become progressively more deconditioned as they cannot participate in exercise. They require positioning where they're most of the time in the bed, in sideline or in prone, and they have an acquired uh, deconditioning as a result of that. And the, the length of stay for that type of a patient tends to be closer to 18 to 20 days, even longer if they're on a ventilator. And when they come through the rehabilitation, do you have a sense of how long patients are staying in the rehab setting on the inpatient rehab? 
Um, so we, we had a conversation with uh, Brian M, who's been managing COVID uh, rehab patients earlier this week. Uh, we're opening our rehab unit again tomorrow after converting to a medical rehab unit. But uh, Brian's impression was there, there are some that progress quickly and, and need only a short course of rehab, uh, really more training and training how to use the oxygen and how to measure their pulse oximetry. And then others that have a more protracted course um, because of their other underlying conditions. Yeah, I agree. He said, you know, some five to seven days. And then I think there are others who have more significant debility in myopathy and neuropathy and uh, general deconditioning that are requiring sort of two to three weeks at, at times. Cara, many of the patients that we've been seeing have been through uh, a long intensive care setting. Uh, many patients have been on ventilators for two to three weeks. Some, a good many, have been uh, have received a tracheotomy, and some of those patients are coming over for inpatient rehabilitation uh, with a tracheotomy, and a lot of them clearly are very, very debilitated. And we're starting to see a, a population of patients with COVID-19 and recovering with significant dysphagia. Could you talk to us about the, the speech-language pathologist approach uh, in patients with COVID-19 to uh, swallow evaluation and the management of dysphagia in this population? Sure. So dysphagia for a COVID patient would have two different types of clinical presentations. Like other restrictive pulmonary disorders, we have to coordinate breathing and swallowing for our patients because this is a reciprocal process. So patients with COVID have difficulty with inspiration and respiration because of the intrinsic fluid buildup in their bilateral lower lungs. Because of this, these COVID patients have great difficulty coordinating the respiration and the swallowing aspects of this. These COVID patients also are showing that they have an increased rate of breathing, which makes eating and breathing very challenging. A lot of these COVID patients, like you had said, Dr. Whiteson, have a lot of respiratory support issues and require ventilator support, which typically on average we would see patients intubated anywhere maybe three to five days in the ICU setting. We're seeing patients 10 days, 15 days, 20 plus days on a ventilator. And we know that prolonged mechanical ventilation is significantly correlated with dysphagia post-extubation, which is commonly referred to as an iatrogenic dysphagia, right? The research is also showing the longer the need for the ventilator support, the more that severe that dysphagia will be. This is because the ventilator is not only causing laryngeal disuse and structural damage, it's also causing physiological deficits in our patients. So the other thing where we would traditionally say, okay, post-exivation dysphagia, we know we're gonna see a tenacious, severe outcome. We're seeing patients that still have persistent respiratory issues, even when they're off that ventilator. A lot of these patients are trait conversions where they're still having these significant coordination issues with the breathing and the swallowing. What further convolutes some of the care as a speech pathologist in an ICU setting is we can temporarily not use traditional formal instrumentation techniques like a modified barium swallow study or fee study. So what we're relying on is a lot of clinical judgment, diagnostic imaging, laboratory values, and just the clinical presentation of the patients to try to make sound clinical decisions. Yeah, that, that I, I understand. And, and, and speaking with yourself and, and some of the other speech language pathologists significantly involved with uh, swallowing issues and dysphagia, it's been a challenge to do the evaluations. The fees and the video swallows really are an issue here, especially in somebody who is COVID positive in terms of you know, evaluating the oropharynx and provoking coughing is considered almost like a super spreading event where the risk 
of you know aerosolizing uh, secretions that are, are that have COVID nineteen virus in them is very significant. And and obviously we don't want to put staff uh, in any kind of danger or any kind of risk. So so I think your point about doing a clinical bedside evaluation, almost going back in time when we didn't have fees and video swallows. So how are we instructing and how can we give guidance to our colleagues around the country in terms of their speech language pathologists managing these kinds of evaluations? And how can we give them confidence that they're doing um, a sort of a, a bedside evaluation without fees, without a video swallow? How can we give them the confidence is an, an okay thing to do? Sure. So it's kind of going back to the basics that we learned in graduate school, if you will, as far as looking at clinical indicators that are strong within the literature, as far as signs and symptoms of aspiration or even dysphagia for our patients. You mentioned on an important topic such as the cough. We are no longer eliciting acute cough to look at a capacity to expel anything from the lungs in the incidence that a patient aspirates just because that is a super spreading issue for our patients with COVID. Instead, if a patient is reflexively coughing from an aspiration episode or spontaneously, that we're taking into account. But one of the biggest things is proper PPE donning for our speech pathologists. All of our speech pathologists are wearing N95s and have been fit tested. They're using a face shield as well as a hairnet and a gown, and they're standing laterally to the patient instead of directly standing in front of them when we're dealing with these more complex patients, whether it's a trach or an ICU patient. So just, just one more question, Cara, and that is about communication in general. And, and uh, it's, it's a, a real challenge for many of our patients to communicate, especially in a more intense setting, and especially also when many of the staff are wearing masks. Human communication often comes through a visual picture, a smile, a wink, a nod, and it's very difficult for people to communicate. Uh, then we have patients with dysphonia. They're, they're having a hard time uh, making voice. How are we addressing speech and communication issues between staff and patients? Sure. So from a staff perspective, a lot of the providers jokingly say, I can't see if you're happy or if you're sad because of your mask. So um, some of the providers have put pictures of themselves on top of their PPE to show who they are and to kind of help have that human approach and that dialogue with each other. It is definitely a challenge. They're trying to use increased vocal intensity. They're writing things. A lot of people are adhering to social distancing, so a lot of things are happening, whether it's via WebEx or distantly via text communication or email communication. For patients, we can use communication boards to try to help them with functional communication or iPad communication as well, or they can even be old school and use paper and pen for communication as well. But dysphonia is a big negative outcome that we see with our prolonged intubation patients from the ventilator. So very, very crucial that we address that and recognize uh, that, that it's coming with many of these patients. Thank you, Cara. Dr. Pinkasov, I'd like to turn to you now. And Dr. Fine had mentioned that uh, COVID-19 is affecting many organ systems, and the brain certainly is one of them. It, strokes uh, we're seeing more commonly or more frequently, uh, but also cognitive issues. So from your perspective, uh, Dr. Vinkasov, what, what should our colleagues be expecting from the cognitive perspective uh, in patients who are uh, surviving and going through the, the hospital continuum of care with COVID-19? Thank you. Main concern is that uh, majority of population who ends up in the hospital 
are very fragile. Uh, there's a high percentage of older population that unfortunately contracts the disease and goes through a very difficult course. And what I see a lot in the hospital is that patients end up on the mechanical ventilation and they require a tremendous amount of sedatives to maintain the adequate oxygenation uh, and parameters. So it's not unusual to see uh, benzodiazepines mixed with opiates and medications such as uh, Presidex and many, many others in between. So that's a perfect setup for delirium development in those patients, uh, which is something that's going to affect ability to participate in physical therapy uh, in the long run. So it's very important to recognize signs of delirium, which is fluctuation in cognition, acute change in being alert and being able to focus, which is really different from the baseline. Uh, and there are lots of prophylactic measures that are advised to minimize risk of delirium. One of them is to minimize use of medications such as benzodiazepines, again, and opiates, and use more of the uh, Presidex or Clonidin uh, or more neutral agents such as Neurontin. We use a lot of melatonin. And uh, when you get those patients in rehab centers, I would uh, expect a lot of them con to continue having the signs of delirium. Yeah, delirium is, is something very significant, and, and certainly we see it a great deal in the ICU. Uh, Dr. Fine uh, at Brooklyn and here in Manhattan at, in our ICUs, we have early mobilization programs that the Rusk Rehabilitation Team uh, set up and addressing delirium, and as you said, trying to avoid medications that worsen delirium and trying to enhance sleep-wake cycles, uh, yeah. appropriate sleep-wake cycles, very <laughs> crucial. Try to avoid uh, pain medications that, that cause sedation or confusion. But this is essential that the rehabilitation team address through the continuum of care. If we want to have a patient that can participate in therapies and progress through the, the continuum and get into the rehab setting. Yeah, just another, another yeah. factor that's very important in the setting is drop in oxygen, which yes. is clearly correlates with how patients are able to focus. And I see it every day, unfortunately, in the hospital. People do become more agitated, more disoriented, sometimes psychotic. And uh, sometimes we do use a, a small dose of neuroleptics to kind of balance this out. And I agree with you uh, that the rehabilitation team has to be very aware of oxygenation. And as Jeff mentioned, this is a respiratory disease, uh, ARDS, uh, restrictive lung disorder. Many people have low oxygen levels. And, uh, and we need to appropriately supplement the, the oxygen and really aiming for saturations, certainly over 90% in the low to mid 90s is acceptable. We don't have to drive it up much higher than that, but it's really key when patients start to become active that their oxygen levels are, are gonna drop. Aaron, just uh, another question about the emotional toll and the emotional impact uh, that this is having on, um, on patients. And sure. there is clearly a degree of stress and anxiety and depression. Yeah. And some are even talking about potential PTSD, almost like a post-traumatic stress mm -hmm. disorder. What are your thoughts? How, how should the rehabilitation teams around sure, the sure, sure. be evaluated? Before I go on to answer your question, I just want to make sure that people do have resources for delirium prophylaxis and management. Sure. And I just want to mention that we did develop a very concise 60 minutes program it's available on YouTube. Anybody could put the words NYU delirium 
and they will have this program with a very comprehensive overview and the measures that are listed there are very much applicable to your population. But now going to your second question, unfortunately, um, this uh, pandemic came with a tremendous burden and emotional stress to everybody. We're talking about healthcare professionals, we talk about patients, and we talk about families. So the isolation that this pandemic imposed on us is a big factor in making people feel helpless, lonely, anxious. And the first step, I think, is to acknowledge those feelings. It's important to recognize that our reactions are normal and uh, we need to address it. Uh, It's very important not to resort to unhealthy coping uh, defense mechanisms such as shutting down and shutting yourself off from the world and not communicating or even worse, uh, resorting to use of alcohol or other substance or tobacco, which would further deteriorate our immune system and health in general. So it's very important to pay attention to basic needs. We do need to remind our patients to get some sun exposure whenever possible. That goes a long way, not only for the mood and the positive uh, spirits, but also in terms of day-night cycle, which is part of a problem when you isolate it or you work from home and your hours are not your regular hours. So people tend to stay up uh, later and watch TV and then they kind of uh, can't wake up in time. It kind of adds to burden of our systems. So whenever necessary, using melatonin to um, balance the day-night cycle is uh, not a bad idea. It's pretty uh, innocent and over-the-counter medication that people could use. With application to your patients, this is the purpose of why they're with you is getting them up and about and getting them back in shape goes a long way in terms of their spirits as well. When you're home, and again, I would like to address this not only to our patients that are in your system, but also to their families and everybody else, because I think all of us now are at higher risk, making sure that we have good nutrition value, making sure that we have exercise, making sure that we have good day-night sleep cycle and paying attention to sleep hygiene is also very important. Uh, It's very important not to allow ourselves to get caught in this negative kind of vicious cycle of uh, watching negative news in the media, which unfortunately is constantly feeding anxiety and depression in some cases, and realize that you need to expose yourself to positive emotions, positive thought process. It's good to take some breaks is good to reconnect with loved ones and get some support, meditation, yeah. uh, spiritual practices. All of this is very simple, basic, but sometimes ignored and important to remember that. Aaron, as you're talking, I'm thinking about how do we get back to a normal life? And it's not just people who are suffering from COVID-19 or their families, but caregivers as well and uh, healthcare professionals and everyone in our community that's what we're striving for. But there's no doubt that the rehabilitation teams around the country have to address the cognitive issues, have to address the psychosocial issues, the emotional issues. You talk about sleep-wake cycles. All this is really very important in not just the hospital setting specifically and certainly in the rehabilitation setting. And as we get ready to discharge patients to home, thank you so much, Aaron. And Michelle, I'd like to 
transition over to you. And as a social worker, I know you spend time with patients and you talk with patients. And, and I'm sure what uh, Dr. Pinkasoff has talked about in terms of the emotional toll is something that you're seeing in many of your patients as you're speaking with them on the rehabilitation floors and trying to prepare them and get ready, get them ready for, to go back from rehab into the community. Yes, uh, definitely. And I also appreciated and agree with the comment about we're seeing a parallel process happening with staff. I mean, this might be the first time where we have our healthcare providers that are facing and coping with the same fears and anxieties and concerns that we're seeing from our patients and their families. And so, you know, definitely we care for our patients' mental health just as much as their physical health and, you know, really trying to help connect them to their families, their support systems, and address their questions, um, normalize their feelings, all coming up for us at this time. Yeah, a parallel or, or more, uh, we are braided together, we are entwined because, you know, many of the patients we typically see in a rehabilitation setting have conditions that we don't have as healthcare providers. Uh, they have complexities that most of the rehabilitation team don't have. But we know this virus is affecting uh, healthy, younger individuals as it is older individuals. Many of the patients we're taking care of are younger. Their path resonates with us. And many of the rehabilitation staff as well, either themselves or their family members, have been battling COVID-19. And so this is, this is a shared experience. And we are all going through this together. Your, your point is so, so well taken. Michelle, the, uh, you know, it all falls onto your shoulders. Uh, they go through the ICU, they go through the acute medical floors, they go through the inpatient rehabilitation floors, and then the patient is sitting in front of you or you're standing in front of them, and the goal and task is to get these patients home. What are you noticing as a social worker and in terms of discharge planning? What are the challenges that rehabilitation sites and centers need to be addressing that's unique that's different about COVID-19 patients. Right, sure. Well, I think one of the main things that jumps out to me from the start is the considerable shift for our staff, our social work staff and the whole team, given the safety concerns for patients and infection control and limits on visitation, we aren't able in the same way as you we were before to really have in-person interactions with patients and families every day from admission to help families see how their loved ones are doing, and you know, educate them as to what, what might be needed at discharge, which we would typically do right from admission. And so we're having to find solutions to that. What we've been doing from social work from the beginning is identifying main contacts and caregivers in the family, getting their email addresses, setting up FaceTime. Um, our therapy and nursing teams have been amazing at keeping an email contact with the families every day to provide them with an update, which I think has been very helpful to uh, keeping people's stress level controlled for families, let them know what's happening and provide the education needed so that when it comes time for discharge, they feel engaged and they feel informed about what their family member will need. So that's been something that's been very helpful. Yes, I mean, NYU and I'm sure many other uh, sites and centers have a strict no visitor policy. So, you know, typically when patients are going through the rehabilitation process, family members, caregivers are if we can't get them to the rehab floor, if we can't get them engaged with the team, if we can't do training with them face-to-face, -face, if we can't get them to meet with the social worker, we consider that uh, close to an inappropriate admission. And yet here we are, we cannot bring family members and caregivers into the hospital. So we have to do this all remotely. And you as a social worker, I know, uh, have 
maintain tremendous and close contact with patients. And it's not only allaying their fears to hear about their loved ones, but it's also an essential part of the discharge process. So any other challenges, for instance, home care agencies, are there any challenges with getting home care agencies to take COVID-19 patients when the patients graduate and are discharged from the rehabilitation unit? In the beginning, several weeks ago, we really were hard pressed to find any home care agency that had the staffing or was able to put in place what the necessary PPE and what they needed to take these cases. We're fortunate now that our community partners, subacute rehab facilities and home care agencies have been able to create COVID units, have been able to train their staff appropriately to, to be able to safely care for patients who've had COVID. So we've been lucky in that regard more recently. I think uh, another positive aspect that we've seen is with basically our whole country, many uh, families are working from home. And so they actually is a, a positive to being having family home and available that we would not have before. With that, we also sometimes have a challenge of, you know, a patient who might have a particularly vulnerable family member at home and their concern about going home and possibly infecting their family member. And so for those patients, we're considering their alternative discharge options, either uh, subacute rehab facilities or to stay with other friends or family for some time and then engaging those people in the discharge plan. Yeah, I think you raise another excellent point, and that is, you know, how long do people remain infectious for? And uh, we're hearing, and again, this is very, very fluid, uh, but we're hearing that in patients who have a good immune system, who are not immune compromised, typically within two weeks of the onset of their infection, they are no longer infectious. It's a rule of thumb, but every case is different. Everyone's uh, clinical situation is different, but it is absolutely a concern when patients are being discharged home. Are they going into a safe environment and are the caregivers safe uh, regarding the patient in terms of their infectivity? You, you mentioned, uh, as you were talking about uh, the subacute rehabilitation centers, are we having ongoing challenges with getting patients into subacute rehab centers? I know there's been a lot of word in the press about challenges with staffing at subacute rehab centers and the ability to provide rehabilitation care there. So from your experience, what you've been hearing in terms of patients who need to go either from the medical center to subacute or from RUSC uh, when they finish their rehab, some patients do need to go on to subacute. Are there challenges there? Certainly. And I have to say, you know, our staff, we have similar concerns to what families are voicing about the care at certain facilities. They're worried. I think, you know, we are usually encouraging home when it's possible, but probably now more than before, trying to help families come together to bring their loved ones home. We are fortunate at Rusk. We have uh, developed partnerships for several years now with very specific facilities who report to us at the status of their facility and their outcomes, and we can feel more assured sending our patients there for care. Something we did from the beginning was to create basically a grid of all of our partners and our post-acute um, director, Adrian Goldberg, was critical in this to help everyone across campuses, staff to understand which facilities are accepting COVID patients, what are the requirements, what are the footnotes, what should we consider so that we can all be on the same page and really have a uh, real-time look at where beds are available for patients and, and what the considerations are. Just briefly, Michelle, one last question. In terms of ordering DME, getting DME delivered to homes, oxygen needs, is that a challenge that rehabilitation centers are going to have to address to get certainly oxygen and other DME delivered to people's homes? 
Yes, uh, certainly. I mean, I know here there was a period where we were having trouble also accessing oxygen. Our partner, a vendor, was able to help work something out, you know, I know with NYU so that we could access it for our patients, but I know I'm sure that other facilities will have similar challenges and we need to consider that as part of the appropriateness of a patient's safe discharge. Michelle, thank you. And we're coming close to the end of our uh, conversation uh, today. Jeff, and, and we're going to address this in, in another Rusk COVID conversation uh, in the near future, but we're sending people home from the hospital, from the rehabilitation setting, and we're starting to reestablish our telehealth and video facilitated outpatient clinics. What are some of the rehabilitation needs you're seeing in some of the patients you're seeing uh, now that they're home for their outpatient rehabilitation needs? The telehealth uh, tool is leveraged to great advantage now. Uh, the opportunity to uh, talk with patients, see patients, evaluate patients remotely from their home is a great uh, resource that I think is used um, in, in a new way in a COVID environment. What I'm seeing is that patients are uh, slow to taper off oxygen. So several weeks of oxygen taper at home. Fortunately, a um, week or two ago, we started to get access to pulse oximeters so patients could monitor their oxygen saturation at home. And um, we gave them home exercise programs so that way they could monitor their exercise tolerance using the pulse oximeter. The persistent fatigue and activity intolerance is probably the biggest variable. Uh, it's quite challenging, patients struggling with a life-threatening disease and doing it alone for most of the day um, was a challenge. Um, and so many patients are grateful to be home, uh, grateful to be seeing our faces on the screen as opposed to a mask in person. And um, I do think that uh, as we go forward in time, some of those patients will require more formal uh, pulmonary rehab. Yeah. Well, I'd like to thank our incredible panel of experts, uh, Jeff and Aaron and Cara and Michelle. Thank you so much for talking to our rehabilitation colleagues around the country. Your expertise is not just great for our patients here at Rust Rehabilitation, but certainly so helpful, our experience, your experience, and sharing it. Please email us. The email address is rusk.info at nyulangone.org. And if you put COVID in the subject line, we'll try and get back to you within one to two days. To learn more about the Rusk Rehabilitation response to COVID-19, you can listen to the Rehabilitation Show on Sirius XM Dr. Radio. It's on channel 110. It's broadcast live every Monday morning between 6 and 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Or you can get a, a replay of the show on your SiriusXM app on your smartphone or on your computer. Also, look out for Rusk Rehabilitation's podcast, Rusk Insights on Rehabilitation Medicine. All you need to do is enter the word Rusk on your favorite podcast app. And look out for the next installment of COVID-19 Conversations, powered by Rusk Rehabilitation. And please stay safe. Thank you again for joining us. You can learn more about Rusk at nyulangone.org slash Rusk. Also, be sure to follow this podcast on Twitter at Rusk Podcast.